Beyond Green podcast. That was Yacht with Summer Song. Dave's choice for music. Thanks a lot, Dave. No problem. Uh, so I'm here with the Beyond Green podcast with our usual two co-hosts, Dave Hostetter and Darren Kaster. What is up? Um, and I think there's a... I've got comments that every time I say your name, Hostetter, there's one of our listeners giggles at the desk. You're a spiteful, spiteful man. Yeah, I'm, I do what I can. Uh, but anyways, what we wanted to do is we wanted to give you a chance, Dave, briefly to mention things two weeks ago's podcast, which was about the unexpected benefits of environmentalism. So I want to give you a chance to talk about that briefly, and then we'll jump into today's topic. Well, what was it that we were talking about that brought that up, anyway? Uh, we were talking... the idea of bike highways. Yes, bike highways, yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess my idea was surrounded... It was, uh, was about the concept of not the impact of environmental values per se, but just the uh, different types of relationships um, that are brought about through just thinking about the environment in general or paying attention to it um, in your life or acting environmentally friendly, what ways that can um, actually change your, your relationship with the world. Um, so I guess I was talking about bike highways and biking in general around the city and how that brings you closer to the actual beat of the city in the sense of storefronts and other bikers and um, uh, pedestrians. And you have a relationship with them which you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have in a, in a vehicle removed from the uh, general flow of the city. I even, I even find this in, in, well, in any type of vehicle in the city. I mean, buses, cabs, you don't really know where you are. In streetcars even, even though they're big open, you can see what you're rounding. You don't know what neighborhoods you're in. You go through them, but you just sort of, you pass by them without thinking about them, and you don't really, you don't have any real engagement with the, with the space that you're in. So just the, the um, employment of environmentally friendly activities in your, in your daily life, how that can uh, uh, benefit uh, or positively impact your um, situation or how you feel about the, the space you live in. All right. Uh, so this is round two of recording in uh, one of the uh, at actually at, from the center of recording. I want to say recording live from the center of social innovation is a lie. We're recording live. We're recording. <laughs> That's a good point. We're, yeah. This was recorded live. <laughs> it was uh, social innovation. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is why we have someone talking about us. There's a whole hilarious bit from George Carlin, actually, mm-hmm. about the, the overuse of the prefix pre. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, it was a near miss. A collision <laughs> is a near miss. They nearly hit. Yeah, but not quite. Sorry. Uh, no, I wanted to uh, briefly just play off your uh, what you're talking about there, because I, as a, a bit of shameless self-promotion, was uh, hired, and by hired, I mean volunteered, uh, to narrate <laughs> a commercial for uh, the Pan Am Path, oh, nice. uh, which is a program that is being developed by some people that I know professionally. Uh, I might even call them friends. Hello, James. Um, <laughs> Does James listen to this podcast? No. Uh, well, hi, well, James he will anyways. now because I'm going to go tell him that he should. Yeah. Uh, he may. I don't know. We have 20, 22, 23 listeners now. Yeah. Well, we're going to make and it 23, 24. And I, what's up, James? It's also guaranteed international because one guy from Boulder, Colorado listens to this. Mm. I wonder. Shout out to Dan. What's up, Dan? <laughs> um, Enough of the name dropping. <laughs> Steve Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Obama. <laughs> so you volunteered. Uh, so so I did the I did the voiceover for it. It was actually uh, the sort of thing that I that I feel that uh, I, I feel I, I feel good about it. It was the sort of thing where like I don't normally get to do it, which was uh, doing kind of like a proper narration for something. I was reading off of a script for. Uh, voiceover for something I had not yet seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was being sort of guided, but it was just, I was literally just there sort of like voice talent. So <laughs> sort of none of my personality, which is possibly good, I don't know, depending on your opinion, mm. of my opinion. 
but it was fun uh, in the sense that they were doing very much what you were talking about in that their idea is to connect uh, across the city of Toronto a single path by which you would be able to bike or walk from the far, far west end to the far, far east end through strategically through a number of quote-unquote recently stopped being identified, very recently stopped being identified as priority neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was not only to promote a direct and easy access way to do that, but so that people who just wanted sort of like an, a, a walking tour or a biking tour mm-hmm. had it and that it channeled people into these neighborhoods that... Um, needed to sort of have more through uh, through flow through them. Why do they need that? Um, just uh, as a way of, like, mixing neighborhoods. And, I mean, mm-hmm. these are generally very low income. Uh, okay. There's not a lot of... That's what we meant by priority. Uh, concept, yeah. yes. Uh, and so just just sort of in the sense that it's sort of demonstrated fact... That's an excellent idea. Um, ...that sort of, like, having mixed income neighborhoods is better. And so because we already have neighborhoods that that aren't mixed income, that simply by providing greater ability of access between these neighborhoods would be good for them. Uh, and then the idea would be is that hopefully by promoting this enough as a thing, they're going to launch it as part of the Pan Am Games so the people who come in to see the games promote this will actually help some of that tourist money flow to areas of the city that, that are more needing of it. That's brilliant. Uh, but that this would also develop commerce along that as well. So they're working with the city to actually get business licenses so we could have things like street vendors and uh, public performance areas and all sorts of cool things. So I think it's a great project. And, and plays in very much well like that. Yeah. And what it also means is it's all, all it's out. It's all, it's all path through nature-ish mm-hmm. parts of the city. Not all of it, obviously. Uh, you have to go through certain various areas, but it's, a, it's sort of an, it's, it provides a, an urban study aspect and an environmental aspect, which just happened to have been my double major. Mm. So I got <laughs> both. Interesting to me. If there was a guy there doing mapping, you'd have all three of my programs. <laughs> nice. The, uh, was someone should make a map of this, of this, uh, of yes. This I'm sure someone has. Part of it goes through Ward 21. Ward 21 has a uh, map of their environmental stuff. That's true. Are we playing seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? Or? Uh, I think so. And we're seven winning. Seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? It's six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> it's, I, it's getting everyone to Kevin Bacon. I do not play that game. No. It's seven degrees of mapping. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. Okay. All right. I, I want to I also jump off on that briefly. Just be that that's ties very strongly into actually what we mentioned two weeks ago, which about some of the people who are actually looking into building cities in a way in a different way. Uh-huh. And there's one guy who's sort of done a lot of work in Melbourne and in uh, Copenhagen, and is the reason why Times Square now doesn't have cars in it. It's all the same guy. Mm-hmm. And it's all because it's all has to do with this idea of that increasing walkability increases or supports actually good neighborhood mm-hmm. and strong and, 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 and actually supports businesses rather than hurts businesses. Like there's, uh, I, I, I definitely told a story two weeks ago about Copen- in Copenhagen, there was a whole bunch of businesses that, that one street was going to be turned into a walking street instead of, instead of a driving street. All, all of those going to be pedestrian. And all the businesses on it hated it and wanted to get rid of it uh, until they actually did it. And then they got so much more business on that, on that street than they, than they used to when there was cars there, that other other streets of businesses tried to do the same thing. Yeah. And everyone, and suddenly it was like the greatest thing ever. What is it that they actually did? They got rid of all cars on, oh. on this one street and it was just like, all of it was walking. They put up some tables so you could what sit down and enjoy What about the four people it? that wanted to drive to my business? Oh, wait, now there's hundreds of people walking exactly. by every few minutes. Exactly. And, if, and to carry this all on the floor, uh, there's... Funnily enough, there was a place in Toronto, in Scarborough, actually, right near where right near where Dave and I grew up, that got shut down. It was a great it was a great food place. It was Greek food, in, like weird area of Scarborough. It was, it was like one of the few places you could walk to and get food, uh, but it got shut down because they didn't have a parking space. And there's a bylaw effective. That's in why Scarborough. that place got shut down. Yeah, 
There's a bylaw in Scarborough that if your business, if you're, you can't, I don't think you, I don't know if it's you, any business or just a restaurant, but you have to have at least one parking space. And there's a law for that for some reason. That was like the greatest restaurant. Yeah. In the, the kilometer. You gotta talk about it. <laughs> I have nothing to say. All right. It was, it was great good Greek food. It was great. It was good Greek food, and you could put chicken tzatziki on your burger. There was there was there was good things oh, going on. Tzatziki on the burger. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Um, but anyways, that. But yeah, like that. Like that's part of the city is being designed. Is is, is is we're still being sort of ruled by the car for stupid, stupid mm-hmm. reasons. I don't know why. Well, another local issue that's happening right now is uh, I was listening to the Keenan Wire, which is a local program uh, right. at CIUT. Funnily enough, right. I've seen advertisement. And uh, the Keenan Wire was discussing the issue of how food trucks is now back in front of City Hall. Yeah. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had spoken to a, a gentleman from Kaplansky's, I believe, oh, yeah. who, who's, who was hilarious because he, like, was... <laughs> anyway, he, he seemed like a very good business person. He was, like, every five minutes, he's like, so in my restaurant at Kaplansky's, which is 75 Blur Street or whatever, <laughs> I, I, that's not actually the address. No. But, uh, but it's, anyway, it's, it's on the, college, and it's delicious. Yes. Well, he's a very good salesperson. Anyway. <laughs> uh, shameless, I might even go as far as to say hey, shameless. Hey, he's selling his, uh, his smoked meat. But the but the uh, but the the kicker there, the reason I'm bringing that into the the discussion with is relation to the the walkability thing is that most of the like there's a, even this most recent round of trying to generate uh, give give Toronto a vibrant street food community, uh, which obviously you know he has a vested interest in, but I think it still has a legitimate point on its own. Um, was that is that basically like there's all these crazy regulations put in and they keep doing it they want to charge them all these insanely high fees and this is all coming from basically the nimbyism of restaurants who are saying that they don't want the competition so I mean his point he had two devastating points one of them was that you know in what other area do we sort of like uh, do we have sort of rules that only apply to some of the people? The the, uh, the the other devastating point was that, like, what he was saying was that, like, he was like, I would be happy if, like, a taco food truck wanted to pull up outside my sit-down restaurant. Do you know why? Because it would make more people come and stop outside the restaurant. And the people that are going to that taco truck are not... They're not competition for me. They're a different customer looking for faster food. They don't care about service. They don't care about sitting down. They don't care about having a bathroom. They just, it's a different thing. It's, it's more, like, it's good for everybody when mm-hmm. you create a culture of food around a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like, it does, do, do, are there a lot, like, they're saying, like, they don't want, one of the, one of the proposed laws in this new thing is that you can't have a food truck within 50 meters, 50 meters of <laughs> another restaurant. Does this apply to other restaurants? Do we have fit like one block, you know, spacings between restaurants? Of course we don't. Is that a problem? Of course there isn't. But it's it, the the issue is, that, and the thing that he brings it up, which is sort of how we can bring this back to the environment, because this relates to a lot of environmental problems as well, is that uh, is just how uh, this is. It, it's not local restaurants that are the people that are fighting this. It's McDonald's and. Uh, and stuff like that. It's the right. major. It's the people who they actually are a threat for having diversity is right. cheap street food, which mm-hmm. is the major corporations. Right. And that once again, uh, it's corporations who are going in to fight the private profit that have massive amounts of influence over public policy, which is identical to many of our environmental issues. Right. Which is massive amounts of corporate influence, purely motivated by profit, but they're, they're, they're be, it's being cloaked under the guise of citizen. You know, this is a this is a citizen issue, and we want to protect local culture. No, you don't. You're a fucking giant corporation with bajillions of dollars who are just trying to protect every penny you make, and that you see this is a threat, so you're killing it. And and this is sort of what's wrong with. It. I mean, the fact that the crazy bill about and we won't go any further into the, the, this actual food truck proposal because it's very very tangentially related, uh, but it's just the fact that it's yet another example of 
not only sort of private corporations doing th- manipulating the rules, but doing it under the guise of a citizen movement as if this is for citizens' benefit. Mm. And that's the part that's fucked up. Mm. That, that's the thing. Like, if McDonald's just wanted to come out and say, hey, food trucks are going to endanger our profits, but of course they can't do that because it's a terrible right. argument. Nobody gives a shit about <laughs> their profits, right? Right. And nobody at the Toronto level is going to be like, well, I don't know. I don't really, I, you know, I think that tr- McDonald's is an important business and I don't want to have them have any competition. Nobody thinks that. But stuff like this, like this crazy bill that that puts these insane regulations on small business owners, people you know who are trying to people like you and I, Stephen, for instance, who are trying to be small business owners who are trying to run something, have these massive corporations saying, "No, I don't really want the competition. We're going to wipe out competition and then put it under the guise of like you know protecting local you know sh- stuff." It's it's really messed up, and right. it's a problem that we see endemically, issue to issue, all over the place. Right. right. I think I, I I think the I think the takeaway from this, if I if I will, well, one takeaway least is that promoting street culture like culture of people actually being outside on the street and walking around is good in every way mm-hmm. like it's better environmentally it's better socially it's better culturally if you are outside walking around your city will be better there's a reason why people don't like la doesn't is this have a plug for jane jacobs i uh, think it is maybe why not <laughs> let's do it um, read all of jane jacobs yeah but like it's no uh, one is going to do that. No, no one's going to do that. Based purely on my recommendation, anyway. <laughs> but it is a good read. Uh, yes, and you know, read all Jane Jacobs, and then go to and then go to Melbourne and really see what having a lively street market is like. Mm-hmm. Or um, most Europeans. Melbourne. Cities. I was. I asked. I asked Chris Turner uh, when he was on the radio show what city I should go to, and he said Melbourne. If you want to see sustainable action really in, in place, it's also Melbourne happens to be ranked the most livable city in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's defenses on all natures. Well, how does this relate to those new, like we think of at least the one going up on College and uh, Spadina, where there's going to be, it's going to be a nice building, where it's going to be a new condo building, um, but they're going to build a Loblaws and a shopping retail um, on the lower floors. Mm. So in that sense, the community of that condo is, is much more isolated into their single box, where they just have to, they don't have to go outside onto the street to shop or do their daily whatever. So that it's is all, it's all within a single, it's all within a single complex. But I mean, for them, like for the people who live in the building, they're they're together in a community doing the shopping in the in the same place they live in. Right. There's um, no community in. But for the lar- <laughs> but for the but for the the surrounding community as at large, the outdoor community around the around condo buildings like that, um, they're isolated from that. So it's I, like I th- yeah, I think I think there's like I, I think that's a, that's a interesting question. I don't know which way you want to go on it, but I think the the big thing is that. The reason why they were made to do that and have those kind of spaces on the ground floor and floor is that by doing that, it keeps the condo building from sort of sucking all life around it out. Because there are people who will still be going in and out of Lobos. People will still come to the area for the Lobos shopping center. Mm-hmm. Like whether or not the people in the center itself are locked into into like that their one building, don't have to go anywhere. Which I don't think they will. Like I think they'll go outside because you know who will the hell will get all their food from Loblaws. Um But. I think there's. I think the the reason why they do that, and the reason why they have these sort of new most places now have to have some sort of stuff like that is so the ground floor. So for the outside, have a reason. It's like if you have a rung of condos with nothing on the ground floor, then that entire space is dead for everybody else except for who live there. Mm-hmm. If you even, even like it doesn't matter what you have there, even if it is something like Loblaws or some like you know home hardware, whatever the fuck you want, it's be it still keeps some livelihood and some reason to the actual life around, it, mm-hmm. which is why they do that. Uh, whether or not you know the people in the actual building will, which will actually go in raises houses. property prices, if for no other reason. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, it's it's like it's it's it's, it's good planning. It's what it is. It's good planning. Yeah. And it's, we actually wanted to get to something else. Yeah, can I segue? Um, so I, I want to outline uh, just sort of a basic uh, concept, and I'm going to give an example, and okay. I will give it to you. One well, of them is there are basically three main arenas under which sort of things like public policy in a very micro and in a very macro sense can be influenced. Uh, those are, or at least I'm for the purpose of the, the next few minutes I'm talking, will outline as uh, citizens, a.k.a. people, a.k.a. population, a.k.a. whatever, uh, individuals, humans, uh, if you will, uh, companies, corporations, private business is the second, and third being government. But just basically those are three areas of influence. So if you are interested in doing something like affecting public policy, for instance, I don't know, to promote uh, sensible public policy on the environment that is to the benefit of everyone, um, you have those three options of areas that you can focus. For instance, so if you're talking about things like not-for-profits uh, or charities or citizen groups or actions or lobbies or any of those things, you're going to be targeting one of those three areas generally, uh, usually at the ignoring of the others. That's poorly phrased, but uh, you catch my drift. Uh, generally, you're going to focus on one of those three Detriment areas. of the others. Detriment. Uh, not even well, not even judgment. Anyway, right. Um, but just you're gonna you're gonna focus one. You're gonna right. choose one to focus on. So generally, there are citizen activism groups who will do things like uh, lobby government. Mm -hmm. There are companies that will lobby government. There are governments that will plead with companies. I won't say lobby because that's <laughs> not the direction of influence. Well, they um, could they could create they could create like there's a lot of laws that are directly around directing. Well, they, yeah, they could make laws that would influence companies. Yeah. But we're talking about we're talking about where those policies come from uh, in the okay. first place. So in that sense, right? You know, we, we can anyway. My skepticism about the ability of government to say anything to private industry aside, technically, government could could uh, seek to. Uh, work with uh, governments, and then, of course, governments can uh, engage with citizens. Uh, this government, I would say, usually opts for propaganda as a tool, but that's not the only way. Uh, education. Re-education, if you want to put it a really Ooh. creepy way. Re-education. Um, but anyway, so, the, so that's, the, pre that's the, the premise. So those are the three areas of influence by which public policy then gets discussed and generated in theory. Um, and I just wanted to sort of Talk about that as a way to think about sort of when you're looking at sort of and an, an perhaps engaging with public policy um, that maybe pe that sometimes uh, not always and I'm not sort of accusing anybody specifically but but much of the time people think about their sort of what policy outcome they're looking for um, but do not sort of hyper focus on one uh, or you're sort of hyper focused on one but you don't sort of uh, phrase it, you don't sort of really target what you're doing. So I just wanted to talk about sort of some of the advantages and disadvantages of engaging with each of these three. Mm. Uh, with, you know, what is the advantage or disadvantage of trying to engage with government as a way of affecting public policy? What's a, the advantages and disadvantages of trying to engage with the public at large as a way of affecting policy and, and engaging with governments as well? Mm. Um, I, as far as some of the advantages, I'll start with the companies. Uh, and then you can either, you gentlemen can either add to it or you can pick one of the other two if you'd prefer. Um, but the, as far as with companies, of course, uh, companies have an incredible amount of market share. Um, there was a story which we've talked about a few times, but I still have never been able to figure out what the guy's name is. Maybe one day we'll know. One day. Um, there's a story, and I know I've mentioned it before, but it's sort of very relevant to this conversation, is the idea of this sort of famous environmentalist who ended up getting hired by Walmart, and he was decried as a sellout, and you blah, blah, blah. And his response, essentially, which I think was a valid one, um, was essentially, like, where am I going to have more influence than inside one of the largest retail 
you know, uh, procurers and supply chains on the planet, where else can I be of more impact? And I think that's a very legitimate argument. However, so, so that's the advantage. The advantage of, of choosing to focus on corporations and companies was that frequently the environment and profit can be phrased in overlapping means in that reducing waste is good for the environment and it's good for profitability. The less waste you have, the more profit you can have, right? Uh, so reducing waste is a very easy selling point for a company. Uh, however, on the other hand, there are areas where there are clearly not a profit motive, even though the environment is being detrimentally harmed. For instance, areas like the oil sands, very, very profitable. There's no way to sustainably mine bitumen, right? So there's sort of very little that you can do there. You can you know, try and stop oil. You can try and promote renewable energy, but there's not really a sustainability model that makes any sense. And trying to like clean up the tar sands is, 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 is just a bit silly. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's like, let's have slightly less damaging cancer instead of trying to get rid of cancer. Right. Um, so th those are, those are an example. So I was wondering maybe if, if you can either comment on my comment as far as some of the advantages, disadvantages or talk about some of the other ones about advantages or disadvantages of companies or sorry, of government rather, or, or about engaging with citizens. Mm -hmm. I'll jump in quickly just to give the guy's name. Ah, His name is Adam Warbach. There you are. And he oh. is the he's the guy, environmentalist activist who joined Walmart. He was a former president of Sierra Club and author of the book called Act Now, Apologize Later. I think this might have been the guy that. Uh, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, that that is his. Uh, and yeah, he was a kick-tact of being uh, of being uh, selling a soul. He also was the president of Sierra Club at thirty-four. Mm -hmm. Damn. Um, nice. I, I mean, so are you going to? Uh, you can go first. No. Please come. Okay, so I mean, I think the relative, like the the effectiveness or the relative effectiveness of working with any of those three categories of people or institutions is uh, depends depends largely on the on the issue. If we're talking about getting rid of, um, or if we're talking about tackling the use of carbon in general, I think you'd have to like all three prongs need to be approached. But if we're talking about a collective, like I was watching um, a video. Or a video of a talk by uh, the U of T professor Joseph Heath last night, and he was talking about climate change as a huge, as the biggest collective action problem of all time, and speaking of it purely as a practical problem, a logistical problem, even where you just have to um, figure out how it is that people will, or that we are able to cooperate um, on such a large scale of seven billion uh, people worldwide. Um, so he thought of it not as like. Not, not like the problem of anonymity in acting in of acting in climate change. The solution to that is not to personalize it and say, "Well, think about your think about your children or or, or, or expose the people who are free riding, so to speak." But to forget exactly the word used, but it's not, it's not not to not to not to not to personalize the anonymity and bring them out of the shadows, but to um, actually practically figure out uh, solutions. So I think in I think working with business would have to be the most um, effective way of figuring that out logistically because capitalism as it stands in terms of business competition is going to have to be changed um, and like in terms of wind and solar or, or sustainable practices being economically viable for a company to actually invest in um, or aquaponic companies and urban farming companies and so forth. Um, the most effective way to change like systemic problems is with the controlling system that already exists, which is capitalism. So, um, I mean, I think it makes sense to work with companies like Walmart, even if you appear to be a sellout. I mean, maybe as a sellout, I don't know. But um, in terms of the use of oil, most effectively, I think, would be the um, 
the engagement of government because you have to make it, you have to, like there are already so many subsidies in place and so much government in, in, interruption into the, the so-called free market um, that it's only through the, the releasing of the subsidies that already exist and, and the control mechanisms that already, that already um, focus us so heavily on oil um, that the government can actually make that energy shift uh, possible. Um, but to bring, I mean, to bring it personally to the citizens, I think it would may, mainly, be a, mainly be a cultural thing to make it possible to be widely accepted. You know, I don't think um, engaging individually with citizens and convincing them of environmental problems is uh, is terribly effective in the end. Beyond just strengthening the culture and uh, in so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, that's, that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to say, which was I really think that what environmentalists have done in the past and what we're sort of what we've gotten away from the last couple of years, which I think is very positive, is that most environmentalist moves for a long time were strictly to people. We were like you know recycle, uh, you know stop eating meat. Uh, all these sort of individual actions that sort of strictly to one to individuals, and it sort of it it worked. There's more vegetarians now than there probably were was 20 years ago. I'm sure there's there's definitely more vegans than there were 20 years ago. There's more vegetarian vegan options out there in the world. Um, you're seeing a lot more uh, like more people recycle, more the better recycling programs are come place. But that doesn't. None of that has really solved any of the underlying problems. All of the, I think appealing to people really the best at best that it can do is sort of solve the minor sort of problems. And and if you can if you can support a culture, it's a whole different thing. Uh, but I really think that's that's the like the best you're going to do is create a network where people actually understand and care about these things, and then they go and start businesses or or join government, and then actually make real change. Mm. I think affecting individual people is is great. I don't think it's enough ever. Like I don't think I can't think like what are the few the, the only like I'm not thinking of the major social changes uh, have all been sort of things where there's been one very specific goal out that, that we're all sort of going towards. Like you know like let's get um, let's like like let let's get women's suffrage out. Um, let's 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 like end some of the more racist laws in America. All these sort of are very direct specific requests of the government. Whereas environmentalists don't have really specific requests of the government, at least not right now. And you can't really have one to deal with climate change. You don't have one where you can be like, government, solve climate change, and we're going to protest until you solve climate change. Because it's not that easy. There's not a single thing you can do to solve, to, to, to fix that. And so I think by, so I think there's a concern there by directing, your, by directing all your forces at people when there isn't really a, a real request beyond, like, think about the future. Mm. Is ultimately what is, is what's what making the push harder. It's much much more difficult to really really advocate for something if you don't have a direct request of the government. Mm. And like I think, which is partially which it was interesting why Al Gore's climate rally project has really switched gears, and they're all about price on carbon. That's their only thing. They want to price on carbon. That's what they want. They're going to do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's been interesting about that? And I, I, I wish I could have I wish I could have talked to them longer. And I, if anyone has an answer to this question, who's listening to the podcast, I would love to hear it. But when I was at, I was at Lead Now's, one of Lead Now had an open had an open uh, meeting, sort of to sort of figure out what they're doing. And they're doing some really cool stuff, and I hope we can work with them in the future. But when they said on the on the environmental issue, there are three prongs, and one prong is, is the environment. And I said there's had to be a price on carbon. 
I thought that was like there's just in my in my belief there's absolutely no question that that is really one of the fundamental things we need to actually get forward. And they were like, eh, that's kind of like it's kind of questionable. And I was like, Lead really? Now? Lead now, yeah. So like, not not questionable in like they didn't like they don't care about it, but they don't care about it. they they seem to think that, that there was there were issues with expressing carbon that made it a controversial within the environmental field. And I would love to know what they are. Yes, my guess I is strongly disagree. I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's almost the one of the only ways to move forward in in any sense that could possibly change, do anything to fix the problem in time because it it simply is something you feed into the existing system. It doesn't it doesn't address or I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll let you finish. Sure. But just the reason why I feel so strongly and why I felt the need to interrupt you uh, was to hammer home on that, which is that I mean, the, I mean, talk about like you know getting off of oil and you know replacing these with. You know, I prefer public transit, but people say, okay, you know, hydrogen cars or electric cars. The things that are holding those back is the infrastructure, right? That isn't the problem, and that's the problem with every solution about dealing with climate change other than pricing carbon is that there's no groundwork for it. You need to make these new institutions. You need to make these new organizations. You need, there's all these things you need to do. When you put a price on carbon, you just feed that into the machine, and it corrects for something that we're trying to correct for. It's, it's, it's not only the most sensical way to deal with the problem, it's the one that has the, like, the, the vast majority of economists who accept climate change, because there's a lot of them who don't, uh, but good thing that economists don't know shit about like, the environment, and therefore like, we shouldn't be going to them for environmental knowledge, but the ones who are aware of climate change and take it seriously, every single one of them uh, that I've ever spoken to, and, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just assume that the vast majority of them, uh, it's been my understanding that the vast majority of them support uh, attacks on carbon. It's, it's, well, you just plug they, it into the system that exists, support, and it works. Right. I support, right. They probably support either a carbon tax or a cap and trade. There's, I'm sure there's in, right. environmentalists probably. But within, within, within those, 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 so maybe I should sort of just make what I'm saying more general mm-hmm. then is, it, regardless of which of those sort of those are two options, is that the concept of something you can simply feed into the existing system is orders of magnitude more sense, and it's the only thing that's going to work in time. Mm-hmm. So I'm shocked yeah. that they thought and that I there was something else you could do because even if that other system has advantages, it has the massive disadvantage that's the same reason we don't have all electric cars yeah. or hydrogen cars, which is that it requires a generation thing. We need this to happen today. Yeah, and I think I think I think I don't know because I didn't actually say, so I, I can't say for certain what their what their position was. I got my sense from they, they were all, like because Lead Now came out of a climate change. Basically, like Lead Now sort of has been trying to say there are other things and has been trying to move into sort of a more a more just general approach. But they came out from they, most of the people who are still on the board came at it from an environment perspective. Mm. Um, and I think I don't think know if whether or not the people they, their reaction was it's whether they didn't want to do it or if their reaction was like that's a que- that, that's like questionable or if that was concerning. Mm. What I got, what my guess is, is that it was they thought it was controversial, and I think I think the reason why I thought it was controversial was the fact that you would have to build in some ways to ensure that uh, that people who already disadvantaged or can't afford goods and services don't get screwed over by carbon tax. Because a carbon tax would be if it's directly it, depending on how you'd have to do it correctly and do it in a way in which you would not have that happen to people. Yeah, but that, that those issues have already been worked out. With if if they're worried about something, it's that they're worried about selling the idea. And I grant them that's an issue, but it's a way smaller issue. Convincing because like those problems have already been accounted for. Hmm. Those problems were even accounted in in Stephen Dion's plan. Right, like those problems are already sorted out. It's just that he was a terrible salesperson, or like whatever. So there are issues with selling the idea, but that doesn't mean abandon it. It's a great idea, and right. it has all of those equity questions are already they're already figured in. They've already been factored in. They're, it's sorted out. It's a done deal. We just need to sell it better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I, I don't think there's 
I'm yet I'm yet to hear a really cogent arg- argument about what to do other than putting a price on carbon right now, like uh, as an idea that can solve us. Although, as a complete aside, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's the most depressing thing I've read all week. Uh, was that I guess the United States State Department, while saying things like you know Keystone won't really affect the world, affect the um, affect carbon and blah blah blah, also released a report recently. It was like a, I think it was like a 10, 11 year report. Uh, they've been doing studying that basically predicted that the United States would completely fail to do anything about climate change, and that we should expect six degrees of global warming, and that like basically they were like but, but was, that was the, the State Department, the United States State Department. The State Department did the first. I think it was the Pentagon that did the second. Oh, okay. I think there because right. Kevin commented that on last week. Uh, good mm-hmm. reason to check the blog. Right. Uh, was that there was very recently a pe- the 2014 Pentagon sort of mm-hmm. like state of, basically the Pentagon's version of the State of the Union, right. where they outlined yes, climate change is a real problem, and we're going to need to start sort of gearing up. This was, it was what's hilarious is that sort of while one side of their mouth they're like well. You know, climate change is a serious issue. We're not really going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Pentagon is already gearing up for, yes, we need more military industrial contracts to prepare for all the global war that that's going to happen because yeah. of climate change. Yeah. Which is hysterical, but yes. terrifying and sad at the same wow. time. Yeah, like it's it's it, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a, basically... The, the strongest government, U.S. government department on climate change is the Pentagon. Yeah. It has been for a while. It has been for quite some time. <laughs> They're getting stronger and stronger. Like, yeah. they've mentioned it before, but this most recent one that Kevin oh, yeah. was citing mm-hmm. is like, yep, this is a problem. We're going to need to start spending money on military to defend ourselves from the impending climate and water shortages. Oh, man. That's that's positive. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's skip all attempt at amelioration. Let's go straight to the... Uh, Arm yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we had, we had, we had, we had conversations about this, about this before, um, about how, about how the, it, seemed, it always seems like the Pentagon is 10, 15 years ahead soci- in, in social issues than uh, the United States is, which I always, I always find very funny. I mean, I feel like... The, they uh, said you couldn't kill gays when everyone else wanted to, and then they, <laughs> you know, they repealed don't ask, don't tell while they're still trying. Yeah, yeah. they're about 10 years ahead. I, th- yeah, I think there's a, there's a surprisingly... Um, prevalent or at least um, apparently obvious trend um, or way of thinking among at least citizens of the states um, around the issue of guns and Armageddon, where it's almost as if you, you, you prepare for something, you anticipate something so much, you feel so defensive that you almost... Um, Self-fulfilling prophecy? You do, yeah, you don't, you, don't, you don't not want Armageddon to happen. Like I saw... I already have the shotgun and all the canned beans. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm I so ready. This, I, saw this, I saw this cartoon in the New Yorker, which I do... I, did, I find a number of those funny, though a lot of people think they suck. But um, it's, it, it's a picture of this dude who's got, who's got uh, I don't know, a huge garage of guns and ammo and, and, and stuff to you know, survive Armageddon. He's got, and he's talking to his neighbor who's got like, glasses, looks like he works in an office wearing the slacks and he's just like oh I, I almost hope that there that there is no Armageddon and it's like almost yeah <laughs> <laughs> because I mean it's, there's just there's just that mentality of you know like something needs to happen to give myself to give me any excitement in my life and give me purpose mm. uh, and so want, if, sorry. if that means like shooting like defending my little children from my neighbors who want my last can of beans <laughs> then it's gonna happen and Fuck it. Yeah. I just what I wanted to do is I wanted to come back because I I actually have an answer that uh, that somewhat agrees with what you guys were saying, but also in, I think in an important way disagrees with what you said. So I wanted a chance to outline. I think that that triangle I set up actually orders in a certain way, and I wanted to present that to you and then allow you guys right. a, an opportunity to come back at me a little bit. Sure. So I disagree in the sense that I do think that the linchpin is citizens, and but I will tell you under very sort of. Clearly how I think that sort of triangle works out. 
which is that government is obviously the enactors of public policy. They also have ideas, but essentially they're supposed to be just, just moot, like, okay, what should we be doing? Okay, let's do it to try and keep society healthful, healthy. So in a on-paper world, they wouldn't even be part of that discussion. The idea of lobbying government wouldn't be necessary right. if we actually had functioning democratic society, which we don't. Uh, the fact that government itself is something you need to lobby or put pressure on is sort of an admission of the failure of our system. Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if I can, just, if I can jump into right now, very quickly, uh, there's, there's, I think even in a perfect democracy, the point of having government is to solve collective active pro- action problems where your specific, where people can sort of look at a big picture and understand sort of more. Uh, than right. can do. So I think there's, I, th- I would argue that there's a, that that even in a very high functional functioning, perfectly functioning democracy, <clears throat> the importance of lobbying would still exist. Because there's issues where people might approach you right. and be like, here's the reasons for this. It would look very it. different than what... It would look very different, for today. sure. Well, so, individual citizens can't go lobby government. You yeah, have to well, I mean, and the, the whole concept of, like, what the Senate's supposed to be, in theory, again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of, like, a sober second look, it makes sure that the sort of the, the, the swing of public opinion is sort of measured out so that it doesn't, like, we don't, like, destroy society because of, like, these whatever, like... It provides a function besides simply the like being the clerks that write out the right. laws, clearly. But they shouldn't like they shouldn't themselves sort of have their own vested interests right. as the yes, government. Fair enough. Um, and then so but what we actually have is we have a situation where governments do what is necessary to get elected. The number one thing that gets you elected, guess what folks, is money. Guess who has all the money? Corporations. So in reality, the way I see the situation, and boy, is this gonna prevent me from getting a job at a large corporation anytime <laughs> soon is that basically is the citizens versus companies through the conduit of the for-sale votes of our government. Hmm. And so that in reality, while informing citizens of the values of environmentalism is in fact a losing strategy. We don't have to theorize about that. We know that, right? Um, that has simply been demonstrated at this point. But what I think, where I think it is, is that I think w- much along the line, I, this is where I was going to say, like, I completely disagree with what you guys are saying, and then, and, then I, right. and then you sort of clarified to the point where it's like, okay, no, we are sort of talking about the same thing, but in different ways, is the point that promoting environmentalism as an idea is a failing strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way forward is still, is, is then not to try and go work through companies because of those limits that I outlined on companies, which is that there are certain areas that are, are that are going to be of great benefit to society that we cannot get companies to do voluntarily right. because of the simply embedded nature of them, the legal structure under which they operate, their their legal requirement to maximize profit. And yes, there are things like B Corps and all that. Yes, I know. But it's not that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. That's, that's a phase in over the net, like a generational thing. We need solutions faster than that. Right now, we have a whole bunch of influence. So what we need to do is still focus on citizens, but with the idea of not phrasing it as environmentalism. We mm. need to be phrasing it. And it's not simply a bait and switch as far as branding tactics. It's these things are legitimate. It's just that we got focused on our ideals and, and how we came to these conclusions. But the conclusions themselves stand on their own. Mm. The argument that you know not poisoning, putting poison in your drinking water to then have to pay to take it out again or letting people get sick and then paying them for, for public health care, or not even doing that and having you know vast amounts of your population not able to work and be productive members of society because they're all sick, all of those things are financial, standalone reasons to not do these things. What we're, what we're suffering from 
is from a lack of understanding about how the environment affects everything that people already care about, and that we should be phrasing them in that sense. And I think that's very much what sort of what, very much what you're talking about with Lead Now, mm. which is what they were doing. Which is, it's not that they stop being environmentalists; is that they stop branding themselves as environmentalists. Yeah. And and I think that's the key. But but I very very much do believe that petitioning government directly without petitioning them by threatening them with citizen votes mm -hmm. is is largely useless. Mm -hmm. And I think that other than simply providing companies with, hey, by the way, here's some way you can make more profit by reducing waste. This helps me because I'm interested in the environment, but the only argument I'm going to give you is that here's how you make more money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should be doing that. But 85% of our effort should be finding ways to phrase the legitimate and, and populist arguments to citizens because... The ways that the ways that companies, you know, in private interests buy votes is by misinforming people. So we need to, and so in all that misinforming gets done in the way of like distorting things. So hey, you want to worry about your job? Yeah, trees are nice, but you need to have a good job. So we need to be talking about jobs. We need to be talking about, you know, not you know, ten dollars today could be a hundred dollars next week, but you have to be willing to say no to the ten dollars today. It is going to be worth a hundred dollars a week from now. These are the way we need to be framing it as that way, and and potentially in some instances dropping the language of environment altogether. The fact that the, that's how we came to these issues isn't relevant, right? If something's true, it's true, and and I think that's where very much where we comes back to what you guys were sort of saying. But I just wanted to say, like in that sense, I, I still think that eighty five, ninety percent of our energy needs to be going into citizens. It's how we're interacting with those citizens that needs to change mm. the language we're using, and that and that largely in many cases that means dropping talking about the environment potentially at all, right. outside of climate change, just because that's such a desperate thing. But we should right. still be talking about climate change in that line. Right. Anyway, I'll stop. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we got about <clears throat> probably six minutes left. David, any last thought? Um, are you saying something like, like dragging environmentalism out of um, any sort of personal um, connection, sort of metaphysical um, basis or values basis, and just making it a practical... Um, issue that is plugged into like a system that already exists. I, I think it's the only way to leverage the door open because there have been a bunch of topics that have been polluted because they're seen as simply ideology of even talking about those topics is seen as ideology driven mm. and we need to crack that door back open and that for the time being this doesn't mean time immemorial but for the now mm. yes so, so but not dropping it all together yeah, not yeah. saying that that ideology yeah, is yeah, useless yeah, yeah. but at the moment yes we have to do that so, yes. to, so to enact practical change you divorce environmentalism um, like like personal deep ecology Aldo Leopold living in the woods by himself environmentalism from um, simple uh, solutions-based or problems-based um, issue, which is societal. That is what and I'm not. Realizing. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Do you have a thought on that, or is that, is that all you want to? I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, I mean, I think I think you're right in terms of um, trying to enact change uh, in terms of the immediacy and urgency for change. It makes more sense to think of it. Um, I guess technically, I, I would use that phrase is what mm. you're saying as a, as a technical issue. Um, but and then, and then there's a whole other spectrum of the types of thinking or the ways of thinking and the ways of being that um, the ideas of environmentalism produce as well. But you're saying that that itself is fruitful is fruitful in that realm, but not in terms of um, practical logistical solutions. Potentially, the word environmentalist, green, sustainability, all of these words are toxic as far as getting enough public support <laughs> behind things that 
you can actually make things happen. And even even, even sustainable the growth, then you don't even have to talk about growth at all. The word sustainable itself at this point is toxic. <laughs> as far as as far as we're talking about like Ford Nation, like we have to be realistic about who the people's who the who are minds we're trying to change. These are people who hear that word and turn their ears off. Yeah, we have to adapt. Yeah, it's not we can't wait. We can't just insist that they need to. We need to adapt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so it's a new language of, of, of the environment. It's a new it's language. When there's a bunch of environmentalists sitting around, we can still t talk about deep ecology, but we should stop banging on Ford Nation's doors mm -hmm. and then telling them about sustainability. They don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even if it's in their own best interests, they don't give a shit. And, and I think largely that's due to our language and the ways in which we talk about the issues. Which is interesting because uh, that almost brings us back to our first episode when, in which we talked about whether or not the term environmentalist or bit, it was useful at all anymore. And the mm -hmm. idea of Beyond Green, when talking about the actual you know, mm -hmm. podcast, sort of, is it, do we need to create a whole subset of new language for it? Mm -hmm. and I wrote something about that once and I got a bunch of interesting feedback. Some people, that's a very polarizing question. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are really against that idea. Uh, of changing the language and of not of, of of just sort of being like taking out the idea of green away from everything. Uh, and there's there's a lot. I of think it can still exist. We just need to have another group of right. people who are doing what I'm suggesting. Right. For that sure. is divorced from. It. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a there's definitely a uh, there's definitely a whole subset of of conversations we had there. Um. So, but we now we're, we're now almost running out of time. So I'll give my last thoughts and then we'll and then we'll end this one. Because we're talking about sort of the differences between uh, environment and um, because we're talking about how, how environment can sort of be seen together with or discussed in the same sense as uh, more nor other issues, basically, and sort of the connection between there. I've met a bunch of people who are very much think that our society cannot basically cannot be sustainable with the with the ways our, our, our we think about the world ton of people, there's a whole subset of the environment who thinks that unless we fundamentally change how we think about the world itself, we cannot be sustainable. And but that's, 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 that's assuming that there, like, everyone at large thinks about the world in the same way. I am, I, I'm, not, I'm not defending these people. I'm just saying these people exist. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and I've met many of them. Um, and I have, a, I have an email that I have not responded to for like two weeks that's sitting in my thing, which is basically all about that. Excellent. And about the idea of having to fundamentally change how you think about, about the world. And for me, it's just this weird, like I, like I, I, I what I find also interesting is there's most often the people who really think that, most often the people who sort of really pre preach this type of sort of back to the land kind of thing, or really preach a sort of like futurism, sort of living in bubbles kind of thing. What what my issue with both those things is both of them are completely implausible with the population that we have in the world today. They're just not like I don't care. Like I, I I understand the value of being in the forest. I understand the value of creating city fully sustainable cities, uh, or fully sustainable like weird localized cities that have like you know built in bubbles basically. Uh, and like both of those would be more sustainable than we have now, but both of them cannot exist in a world with 7 billion people, or 8 billion, or 9 billion, or 10 billion. And so to push for that kind of view for me is basically in my mind pushing for genocide. Like it's almost, like I'm not saying they are, not, that's very, very harsh way of saying it, but like if your idea requires 3 or 4 billion people to not be currently living that are living now, unless your goal is to so dramatically reduce actual birth rates that this actually is possible, and in like in 20, 30 years, I don't see what else I don't like it. It's, it's, I can't get on board with it because I cannot see how that isn't in some way morally questionable. Or else you're just putting the cart before the horse in terms of trying to assume there's a drastic end and using that as the force instead of talking about 
how incremental changes could actually occur. Yeah. Which is actually a great place to wrap it up because right. I didn't tell you this yet, but okay. the email that we're going to be responding to after we recorded this on, to on tomorrow's show, but after this podcast comes mm -hmm. out, uh, was asking us to address the issue of overpopulation. Ah, interesting. So I have so many thoughts about population. I have so many thoughts about population. Nobody likes talking about it. We will have spoken about it by the time you hear this podcast. So that's a cross promotion. Good All reason right. to check out the most recent episode of the Green Majority. Yeah, do so. Uh, this is uh, Yacht with Summer Song. Enjoy. Play us out.